This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. Should we use AI to write worship music for the church? No. But what about soundboards or electric guitars? Hmm. You thought the answer would be straightforward, but this is Device in Virtue. Hello, welcome back to Device and Virtue, where we argue the wrongs and rights of technology and faith in everyday life. We're coming to you from Chicago. I'm Adam. And I'm Chris. Hey, Adam, today we are going to talk about tech as it applies to worship in the church. Worship and technology. (laughs) Worship, music, technology. When you said that we should talk about music and tech, I was like, I don't think we've ever done an episode about music. Yeah, I don't think so. And there's a lot of technological... (laughs) With music, also music is a big topic. Music is a big topic. <laughs> so, <laughs> I don't think I knew what I was biting off when I suggested this. So I was thinking like we should probably limit this down, Adam. Why don't we just talk about worship music in the church? Yes, we'll talk about church music and, and keep it somewhat simpler. But it turns out that a lot of music comes from church it music. It turns out that was a mistake because <laughs> if you know anything about church history, most music that anyone knows, whether or not they have any connection to the church, yeah came from the church. (laughs) And it's still true. I mean, you look at things like American Idol. Some of the early winners of American Idol were people who grew up in the church and have been singing since they were two. He goes for American Idol. Wow. I was thinking like Bach or Vivaldi (laughs) or like all these famous Christian composers. (laughs) I'm just bringing it into the current age. But I think the big thing that people are thinking about is, is AI gonna show up in Christian music? And it are already is in regular music. There was a story recently about Spotify having tracks on it, like music that's written by AI and, wait for it, had AI bots listening to the music to make it rank higher. (laughs) Well, and I think then the people creating the music are creating the bots and they're generating their own income stream through Spotify, right? Yeah, yeah. I guess so. Like like have these bots all listen to music that you made by bots and then take home a paycheck. Yeah. Like, it sounds like a full-time job to me. It seems like it's really a matter of seconds away before AI touches worship music and stuff, right? If it hasn't already. I found this TikTok. Check this out. Let's see if AI is any good at songwriting. Christian worship song, God's Grace. Here it goes. Okay, this looks pretty good. Chord progressions, though. Whoa. Okay, okay, okay. Let's see if this is any good. Your grace, O Lord, is like an ocean deep and wide. It washes over me, carries me through every tide. Bit wordy, but okay. I'm undeserving, but still you Chorus, what do we have? For your grace is enough, it's more than I can see. Your grace is enough, it covers all of me. 
This is this could work. I mean, it's generic, but it's pretty good. Dude, that was better than I expected. And honestly, it was really good. <laughs> and by better, we mean someone put a comment that was like, just proving that Christian music is super generic, right? <laughs> super basic. But still, it sounded like a lot of current worship songs. I could have been raising my hands to that song and probably not known the difference, honestly. And I think that feels like sort of weird, sort of creepy, or just sort of maybe ick of like, oh, do we just have AI bots write these worship songs? Right. And how does that connect me to the spirit of God mediated through this AI. But the reality is like, I sing worship songs all the time and I don't know the composer. I don't know the person who wrote it. I don't know anything about their story. Yeah. So yeah, as soon as you get into this and start breaking it down, you think I'm listening to worship music on Spotify. Is there any technology there? Do we have a soundboard at the back of the church? Is there any technology there? And so it's like, where is the tech located? We just, someone writing it, that makes it yeah, weird. Yeah. But someone writing it is probably using a computer and an auto-tune system at this point. So there are a lot of things to consider. There are a lot of things to consider. And the reality is there's a long history of Christians in the church wrestling with what to do with technology and worship. We should go back and ask the question, when did technology first touch the world of worship in the church. So when did tech first hit Christian worship? My brain would first go to like the Psalms. Yeah. Uh, you think of the harp, the lyre, which <laughs> when you're a kid was like, they're lying. The tambourine, those things are rudimentary, it seems like, but that feels like David's drum on a harp. That's Christian yeah. worship. There yeah. you are, right? David's like the <laughs> Old Testament rock star, right? He's this moody emo guy. Okay. <laughs> He's writing all these songs. <laughs> He's strumming on his lyre. Yeah. I mean, come on. That's totally where I go. But then it disappears in the New Testament, which is crazy. There's not a lot of discussion about music in the New Testament. There are a couple references. One is about Jesus and the disciples on the night before Jesus dies. You know, they mm. sing a hymn and then they go out to the Mount of Olives. And yeah, I, yeah, I yeah. love that little note. It's yeah. just an interesting kind of quiet note that that makes it feel more human, makes it feel more personal, but thinking about them just singing together and curious what hymn that was. And then you have this famous line in Ephesians where Paul says, don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then addressing one another in Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making a melody to the Lord with your heart. But there's no mention of using instruments or Hmm. playing anything. It's make music in your heart with your body in some sense. Yeah, so that's interesting. I mean, you sort of picture it because we have tambourines and harps earlier. You assume there might be, but yeah, it doesn't say anything. Yeah. So it gets crazy, right? Because the church and the history of the church as the church forms starts going, instruments are bad in worship. Yeah. Like not just one person says this. Yeah. Like tons of the church fathers say things about instruments in our lens, we think (laughs) about as technology. Yeah. In worship, but they're like really against it. And mm-hmm. it starts pretty early. All these church fathers are all over the place. Clement of Alexandria, he's an early one. He's 150, 200-ish. Yeah. Okay? So, I mean, there are these scriptures about instruments, like yeah. the Psalms, like we were just right. talking about. Right. They start reinterpreting the scripture, talking about instruments, as not talking about instruments at all. Here's what I mean. Yeah. Like he says, he's writing this. He's by the lyre. It's meant the mouth struck by the spirit. So he's like, you can sing, but like not use an instrument. He goes, the timbrel and the dance, that refers to the church meditating on the resurrection of the dead. I'm like, okay, well, <laughs> okay. this is like typical of church history stuff where they're using these analogies. But he's like, praise him on the chords and the organ. 
our body is called an organ mm. and wait for it the nerves are the strings <laughs> which I don't know an organ that has strings but he's like so it's like you can sing is the point he's like clashing cymbals mm. the tongue is the symbol of the mouth so he's saying you can sing but you do it with your body only he really has this idea of get the instrument out of here Jerome, who's another church father a little bit later, Jerome cracked me up, St. Jerome. He's 300s because he said the 10-stringed instrument, which I assume is somewhere in the Psalms, is actually our two hands. Two hands in the air, 10 <laughs> fingers up there. Those are the strings. So just put your hands up in the air. <laughs> and you're doing spread eagle right now with your arms. It's with my great. worship hands. I'm doing worship <laughs> hands worship in the air. hands, yes. <laughs> they, they started writing out the idea of having instruments right. in worship. Yeah, they just were reinterpreting instruments as being our own bodies. Augustine, who's the one of the most famous professors of the church in the 400s, he's famous for his conversion story when he was a professor of rhetoric in Milan, and then he winds up yeah. like being in a garden and it's take up and read. He hears this voice. He picks up the Bible, reads it, right, becomes a Christian, and then becomes a famous bishop. In Milan, it turns out, and I did not know this, he wrote a five volume essay on music called De Musica. Huh. And he writes all about how music is actually very mathematical and has all these rhythms right. and vibes to it. Turns out this gets picked up later by the medieval church. We'll get there. But he worries about music once he becomes a Christian. He confesses, you know, he wrote the confession, so we always say Augustine <laughs> confesses something. He confesses that he greatly enjoyed the singing in church in Milan. Mm. And that's where Ambrose was too, his mm. pastor. And it contributed to his conversion. Ah. But now he fears that singing just even singing is too attractive. He's like, I vacillate. Is it dangerous pleasure or a healthful exercise? Ah, interesting. <laughs> like, so he's like, but maybe music could help weaker minds be stimulated to a devotional mood. Hmm. So hmm. he doesn't know what he thinks. Why were people against some of this instrumentation stuff? Yeah, one of the surprising things was there was a strain of thought, and it's well represented by someone like John Chrysostom. He's another ancient church father. And the thinking that he articulates is that God allowed the Jews to use instrumental music in the Old Testament in the same way that he allowed animal sacrifice. And it was this transitional practice, and it was meant to lead people from their idolatry and to help them move towards true spiritual worship. And so he's saying we needed these instruments to help us bridge the gap between our own sinful idolatry and true worship of God. But now that we're living in the age of the New Testament, now that Jesus has come, we don't need these physical instruments anymore to help us bridge that gap between our own sort of sinful idolatry and true worship. We can now worship in spirit and truth without instruments using our bodies instead of these technological machines. Wow. So it's like, that's old covenant stuff. Like we don't do that anymore. Yeah. And this line of thinking continues for a thousand years or more. Yeah. And it makes sense now why in 1992, when I went to the CD <laughs> store, I was looking for music that my mom would let me buy because I was only allowed to buy Christian music. And do you remember this? <laughs> there was a CD of Gregorian chants that got really popular one year. And it was, oh, and it was like, it was, I think it was just called Chant. Huh. And it had monks on the front of the CD. <laughs> I don't remember that. <laughs> and it was literally just a CD of chanting monks. Yeah. And it, like they were playing it on the radio. It was like this. Oh, weird interesting. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the point was, this is why the church became really known for music that was just chant and voices right. without the instruments. Right. And when Gregorian comes from Pope Gregory the First, huh. who's like in the 600s, who's like attributed to helping promote this stuff. Yeah. And he actually is the one that gives all the notes, musical notes, that calls them by letters. 
Oh, interesting. So he's like the key of A, the key of C, oh. the key of D. He's the first one to use letters for that kind wow. of stuff. Wow, that's already in the 600s. Yeah, yeah. And the church winds up being super involved in a lot of the technology of music, even if they're not doing instruments in the worship service. They're doing voices. A guy I found that I did not know about was Guido. Guido. <laughs> which is, love it. I love it like already. Star Wars, right? right? Guido of Arezzo. He's in a thousand, and he's the one that came mm. up with Do, Re, Mi, Fa, Sol, La, Ti, Do. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, came up with those things. I mean, That's like, we think Sound of Music, that came from a monk <laughs> right. in a thousand. And you know how we have the musical staff and musical notation? He's doing that at that point. He's right. the one that becomes one of the inventors of you writing out music mm-hmm. as a notation on paper. And we would acknowledge that written music is a form of technological development, and it absolutely begins to shift the church in new directions, because as you start to write things down, there's a little bit more precision that can happen, and there's also a little more technical complexity that can start to happen with this. So instead of this oral tradition where you learn it over time, there's now libraries of music that can be learned and not have to be taught necessarily. Absolutely. Like you get into the Renaissance. (laughs) (laughs) My word. We're getting French here. (laughs) The Renaissance. But I was learning about this. The madrigals, which like some people in high school had like a madrigal choir or something, which was always the nerds. The most nerdy people did the madrigals. But the madrigals is when in the medieval era, you start having people doing three-part harmonies instead of the monks doing one note up and down. So because we can write things, you have people doing these harmonies. And then you get into Baroque music in the 1600s and 1700s, which is really considered very emotional and flowery. You know, you talk about melody and harmony. We think of that as really common today. (laughs) But there is a sense in which there were older forms of music that said, hey, we want everyone singing the same melody because that helps the church to become unified. As we all sing the same song, the same melody, we're united in spirit together. Oh, interesting. And so there's this notion that even to move into harmonies actually creates a disunity, <laughs> oh, so to speak. Fascinating. Right. And so again, you have these technical developments are leading to some of these theological questions yeah. around what does it mean to be the church united in worship? So then we hit the Reformation. 95 Theses on the wall. This is like the part of church history that if you don't study anything else, you know this part, like Luther and Calvin, and they really change it. And this is really fascinating. When we hit the Reformation, there's actually been a couple hundred years where music has gotten really big in the church, but it's different. It's become really professionalized. And you start having instruments. So the organ winds up showing up somewhere in this time, right? I barely know, but it's a thousand (laughs) or something. I think there are earlier ones, but they start showing up in churches and the We think about it as Catholic churches now. Mm -hmm. Of course, that's prior to the Reformation. And you start getting some of this instrumentation, but the people in the pews aren't singing. You're getting composed music, that's Baroque Mm -hmm. music, these other things that are like done for professionals to sing. So you bring in a few professionals to do it, or you have monks do it, or priests do it. But the people go into the church to listen. But it's not for what we would think about as congregational singing. That's not part of it. So suddenly instruments are there, but the singing is actually not. It's almost like the reverse, which is really interesting. Yeah. And I think the organ is really used to replace a lot of earlier instrumentation where you would have a small orchestra or a small group of, I imagine, minstrels, but, you know, that sort of idea. And the organ ends up supplanting all of these different instruments and taking over 
and yeah, leading the way. But it's not accompanying singing. It's simply creating ambiance. And this is why I think the Reformation leaders, Luther and Calvin and Zwingli, we should talk about him, actually are really against this. And yeah. I always thought that Luther thought the organ was like the devil's instrument or something. But I think the reason why he didn't like it was partly because this whole Catholic Church thing. He yeah. was revolting against the practices of the Catholic Church. And for him, it was participation was the big issue. So mm-hmm. he turns out to be a big songwriter. Mm. He writes all these hymns, right? But he writes them in German. They're not in Latin yeah, right. and they're not technical. They're actually in the language that people can sing. It's the vernacular language. Right. Yeah. So you really, in the Reformation, as with everything else, you sort of have this splintering where you have the Catholic Church and their attitude towards instrumentation. You have Luther's attitude. You have Calvin's. You have Zwingli's. All of these have different attitudes. Some are okay with it. Some are not okay with it. Yeah. Anyone that knows Zwingli, unless you went to seminary, you don't always know Zwingli, but he's a yeah. lot like the current Reformed American okay. sort of setup. But he's famous for going and taking out all the art of the church and smashing all the statues because huh. he thought this is idolatry. Huh. Like Luther and Calvin didn't do this. He does this. So he also decides to ban all music, like not just like instruments. Mm. He does have everyone smash the organs in 1527. Let's go smash the organs. But he also bans singing in general. Interesting. Meanwhile, Luther is writing hymns. So Calvin turns out to be sort of a middle ground guy where he's like, actually, okay, we can sing, but we can only do things that are in the Bible. So we can use instruments that are in the Bible. Oh, interesting. That's a harp or a lyre. We're back to the Old Testament (laughs) stuff. And we can sing lyrics that are in the Bible. So Mm. the The Psalms. Psalms. Yeah, right. The Geneva Psalter. Yeah, the Geneva Psalter. So that winds up later being picked up as the regulative principle of worship. Um, It gets picked up later by Reformed folks. If it's in the Bible, even in the Old Testament, you can use it or do it. So if it's a symbol, let's do it. Don't tell those Presbyterians because the only (laughs) one using a symbol is assemblies of God right now. But (laughs) you can do it if it's explicitly in the Bible and you can't do it if it's not. Yeah, the reaction to the Catholic Church pervades Protestantism. And the first 1500 years, there's reaction against Judaism and the Jewish sort of approach. And then it develops into this kind of reaction against the Catholic Church. And Luther says about the organ, he says, there can be more faith in a Miller lad than in all the popes and monks with their organs. And Calvin says, the human voice is better than all the dead organs. Wow. So So they really wind up contrasting those. Yeah. They really set this up. And it's in reaction to, on some level, it's in reaction to Catholics, which they see as picking up some of the Jewish approaches to worship in general. So that's interesting. The reaction of the Jews originally, and then later it's the Catholic Church. And by the way, that connection theologically works for a lot more things, but (laughs) it's a really astute connection. The Catholic Church really does stay on, though. They allow the instruments and the technology. And they wind up having all these composers. One of them, Vivaldi, the composer. I remember my dad playing Vivaldi's Four Seasons on our CD Uh, player when I was young. But apparently he's like a super prolific composer. He wrote over 500 concertos, 50 operas, all these things. But he's a priest. Oh, interesting. And he's a priest in Venice. And apparently he has bright red hair. So they called him (laughs) the red priest. And there's a story. One day he was like celebrating Eucharist, like in front of our congregation. (laughs) I don't know. This is like 1700 something. And he gets a song in his head. And he okay. stops right in the middle of the Eucharist and, and <laughs> steps down from the altar and runs into a back room so he can write it down. <laughs> and his congregation is like, what happened? It became such a big deal. He got called in front of the Inquisition. Oh, really? Like the church <laughs> courts. Are, and they're like, why did you leave the Eucharist in mid-thing? Uh, like, I, yeah. I was like, I had a song on my head. I had to write it down. And apparently the Inquisition was kind to him, did not 
kill him. And they were like, okay, fine. You're a genius and you are allowed to continue writing your songs. However, you may not celebrate the Eucharist again. <laughs> so that was his punishment for that. Oh man. All other leaders in the church that have really contributed to music, you know, also think of like Bach, you know, who's really famous composer, 1700s. And yeah. it turns out he wrote tons of music for the Lutheran lectionary, like all these pieces huh. for it, which is really cool in Germany. And that's interesting to me because he was like composing with strings and all that kind of stuff. Right. So I guess the Lutherans at that point are right. cool with the instruments. <laughs> right. But portions of the church still are, right? Even when it comes mm-hmm. across to America later, right. you think about John Wesley and Charles Wesley being famous hymn writers for music. But there's a mixed reaction to whether we can still use tech instruments in worship, right? Yeah, very much so. Yeah, you have Charles Wesley who writes a lot of new hymns that are sort of evangelical. They're meant to communicate the message of the grace of God. And in some sense, they're starting to be, yeah, a little more evangelistic in their approach. Uh They have a message to convey to people who might not know the message as well. But then you have his brother, John Wesley, who's like, so I don't have any objections with instruments. This is a rough translation. I don't have any objections with instruments of music in our chapels, provided that they're neither seen nor heard. Fascinating. Really? And so he's like, you can have them, but you can't play them. <laughs> I thought they were super pro music, but they were pro singing. They were pro, pro the singing. songs. Yeah. Or even pro instruments, not in the church, but not in church. Not in church. You cannot have it in worship. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So by now we're coming into the U.S. in the 1600s, 1700s. And really you get to the late 1700s, things really start to shift in attitudes towards instruments. And in some ways it starts with something called the singing schools. So there were schools for people to learn how to read music so that they could sing various songs in church, right? And so they become literate in singing, quote unquote. And so you start to have this differentiation between singers, quote, and non-singers who are not literate. They can't read the notes to sing songs. And so again, you have this more technical expertise happening, but here's what happens. The students who are in this singing school, they tend to be younger and the older people, once they get married, they leave the singing school. So they're no longer in the choirs or singing at church, but the younger people, they don't know how to sing very well yet. And so someone's like, well, let's bring in the viol, which I think is like a viola or like a cello. Proto-violin, I don't know. Yeah. We're going to get hit by several people that yeah. know this way better yeah, than we do. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but yeah, but a viol, we'll bring that in. Okay, so let's bring the viol in and it'll help lead them so they can sing the notes correctly. Okay, fair. And so their sort of lack of understanding gets supplemented by an instrument. And there's one church in Boston where they introduced a viol and six months later, they have five or eight other instruments like the clarinet and the oboe and the violin. And so in a relatively short period of time, this is the late 1700s, it suddenly shifts and people are start to say, well, it's a practical need to uh, learn this yeah, music yeah. and let's just bring it in. And so you start to have more instrumentation again in Protestant churches throughout the U.S. and I think eventually in Europe. But even though it starts to happen quickly, it doesn't happen across the board. For example, the PCUSA. Presbyterian Church, yeah. The Presbyterian Church. 1842, they have a confessional. And one of their confessional questions is, is there any authority for instrumental music in the worship of God under our present dispensation? Okay. 
can we use instrumental music? Is there any provision for it? And the answer is not the least. <laughs> and then it expands on that. That's about 1850. Okay. And then you have someone like Spurgeon, 1892, thereabouts. And he says, we might as well pray by machinery as praise by machinery. And he's referring to instruments. Hmm. He's saying, we don't need instruments to pray. Why would we use instruments to worship, to sing? We don't need them. And that's like the late 1800s still. It's really fascinating when we start looking at the history of 2000 years of the church, how much different sometimes our experience of what the church feels like and is like when we walk in the door yeah. would be yeah. versus other Christians in other times. Yeah. The contemporary church in a lot of ways feels very different. I felt the same way when I found out that they didn't introduce pews into the church until the 1400s. For the majority of the Christian church, <laughs> yeah, they right. didn't have pews. Right, they right, didn't right. have places to sit. Yeah, yeah. They had well, cathedrals. Well, right, yeah. And this is the same kind of thing. Like they didn't have instruments for most of the history of the church. And so our own experience is very different from the church historically. Thankfully, when we got to the modern era, and by the modern era, I meant when I went to college in the <laughs> 90s, they had the guitar. <laughs> I'd like to talk about what experience has been like today in the Chris Tomlin era of worship. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. So Adam, you know that like I was like a worship pastor on a campus for a long time. And I know a lot of that started when I told my parents that I really wanted to save up for a Yamaha SY85. Oh, okay. Yeah, th <laughs> those were a lot of letters. I didn't know where we were going. <laughs> yeah, which was like the cool... It was a keyboard, right? It was like an okay. electric keyboard. But this thing was a $2,000 item that wow. had a thousand different sounds. <laughs> I know everyone had a Casio keyboard somewhere in their house at some point that played <laughs> right. like ding and little ding, 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 ding and stuff. But this stuff, this was like a pro quality thing that artists would use. Wow. But I, when I was like 15 years old, was like, I really want this because <laughs> I played the piano. And so I just started saving for it with no hope oh, of wow. getting it because $2,000, you know, and no was kidding. blown out of my mind when my parents surprised me. I think on my 16th birthday was saying we're going to take your like $300 in the bank <laughs> we'll pay the rest and we're going to buy this for cool. you cool so I have a keyboard in my that's room amazing. that's like Michael W. Smith it's <laughs> very cool you have arrived <laughs> <laughs> if you were in that world in the 80s there was these Korg M1 keyboards like I knew these uh -huh. names because I was in the tech and in the music uh -huh. and I was all about this stuff and you weren't really connecting your keyboards to computers yet I mean you were there was something right. called MIDI which was like this cables between the two. Yeah. But you could do a lot of the computery stuff right on the keyboards. My Yamaha had a disk drive, a floppy disk drive oh, that you would put <laughs> like the three and a half yeah. inch, you would stick one in there and then you could record music on it by hitting start record and it would start being going beep, beep and it would set the metronome and then you'd play oh, okay. music over that. I could layer, you could do tracks. So I could still start with a piano track and then add like an, an organ behind it huh. and then add like rhythms like on the keyboard, you do the cymbals <laughs> as you're pressing a keyboard key. 
it was super fun. I still have those discs, which are completely incompatible with anything that works today. <laughs> so the music still exists somewhere is what you're telling there, me. <laughs> who does? I'd be right. little, probably a little bit embarrassed, right? No, yeah. that'd be fun. But this is why when I went out to college, I was like, I want to be on the worship band. And I loved yeah. it. I got adopted immediately when I was 18 by the worship leaders. And I would practice with the band on campus. And there would cool. be guitars. And then I realized you were not cool if you played the keyboards. You had to be cool. You had to play a guitar. <laughs> so <laughs> That's why I played the guitar. <laughs> Did you really? And Yes, I played the guitar. And I was a worship leader in college. I have never seen you play a guitar. Really? I can play guitar. <laughs> and yeah, I was part of a school-sponsored band that traveled around the upper Midwest for different churches. We were called, wait for it, the name of our band was Two Cents, as in the two pennies that the poor widow put into the well, basket. That's that so humble it was, of you. Yes. We gave everything to the Lord in sacrifice. <laughs> so yes, I was the cool guitarist. Thank you. Wow. This is a piece of Adam history I did not know. I taught myself as well and played in college and wound up leading the worship band from yeah. the guitar instead of the keyboard because it, it worked out better. And of course, we had electric guitar. We had actually electronic drums because we weren't allowed to have full drums in the place we met on campus. Yeah. We had a soundboard, a mixing things and we'd pack in and out the speakers and everything else that had to come into this lecture hall on campus to yeah. set up. So we'd set up the speakers, oh, set up the chords, set up the sound system, set up all the band instruments, do our practice, and then lead the worship service. We did it on <laughs> Saturday nights. I just think about zero awareness of a Zwingli situation, right? of Jerome talking None. about no instruments, the debates in the whole church around. Like, for the, centuries. For centuries. Almost millennia. Everything that we just said. like yeah. That is, to me, like worship was like you play this sort of pop song with a guitar and yeah. my keyboard yeah. and you use a ton of technology in worship. Yeah. When I eventually went and became ministry staff, I led all the worship teams and I would take my teams up to Willow Creek and go to their worship arts conference, yeah. which was thousands of people. And they had people on the main stage talking about how to do a better worship service with screens. <laughs> and there'd be a vendor display hall with all these tech companies. And it wasn't just Christian companies where right? every right. Bose speaker, everybody was at these things because they were selling tons of hardware. Yeah. And you yeah. just ogled all the stuff. I'm like, this is so <laughs> cool, all this tech. This is worship. Yeah. Like, yeah. that's my experience. And this is how we're going to create the worship experience by creating all this ambiance, creating all of these effects, maybe even a smoke machine. Oh, I remember thinking <laughs> I could use a smoke machine. <laughs> did you have any favorite worship songs from the era? Yeah. One of the songs that I remember, we did a contemporary version of the old rugged cross, oh, yeah, which yeah. felt really old school, right, but yet right. we brought in the whole band for it and made it interesting. But even what, that's like a hundred years old, maybe? That's yeah, barely. Yeah. yeah I don't like think it's very old. So it's super contemporary. What about you? I I think about tracing music through the different eras of the 60s. Like, I have decided to follow Jesus, mm. which is having a resurgence now, I think. A lot of people uh. have re-recorded it. The Lord, I lift your name on high era. <laughs> Lord, I lift your name on high. Awesome I mean, God. Is, oh, yeah, that's that same era. Salvation belongs to our God. Yeah. Be to our God. Darlene and ever, ever. Yeah. Oh, Darlene. Australians represent. Yeah. And then, like, we got into the 2000s, which was the era, the 2000 to 2007 era, I'm going to say, is the era that I was super into worship yeah. music, right? Yeah. Third day, God of Wonders. Yeah. Matt Redmond was so blessed be your name. Mm. Chris Tomlin, how great is our God? You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> how great is our God? 
Oh God, sing with me. The question. His arms are in the air again. The thing I loved about that recording is every worship leader on the planet always did the sing with me. How great is that? They'd sing that, which was like oh, yeah. an add on in the recording, mm, right? And like yes. you had entire congregations singing, sing with me. <laughs> like, hey, we're just calling <laughs> each other to worship. It was. And then the Hillsong songs like that were really popular. Here I am to worship is 2003. Yeah. Here I am to worship. And then from the inside out, mm-hmm. 2006. Like these are big songs yeah. that I remember leading. And what's interesting is that you mentioned Third Day. Their album Offerings kind of a revelation you had ccm music right which was like this popular level of music but then third day comes out with a worship album and everybody's like oh my gosh we could do worship music yeah. which today that's by and large what christian music is again yeah. we've gone back to let's do worship music not songs about being a christian but it started with this early 2000s huh. shift and third day's offerings album interesting and you were looking at the charts for worship music right and the popular music of today. What did you find? Yeah. So you might know that there are Christian music charts, like Billboard. What's the most popular song in the United States today? Right. And there are even worship music charts. You may see if you're in a church that has screens, at the end of every song, there's like the fine print with all the information about who wrote it and copyright information. Yeah, the CCLI license information, right? the CCLI. So the CCLI, which I don't remember what it stands for, Christian Contemporary Licensing something. I don't know. <laughs> Something like that. Uh, I used to know it. I literally used to have CCLI numbers memorized for oh, our churches because I was the worship pastor and you constantly <laughs> used them, right? Yeah. T- explain right. it so, for those who So you have to get a subscription to CCLI. If you want any of my thoughts about subscriptions, see our last episode. <laughs> you have to get a subscription and CCLI tracks the charts of the most popular songs. So yeah. they looked at the top 25 songs for the past 10 years. How many songs total do you think showed up on the top 25 list in the past decade from 2010 to 2020? Oh gosh, no idea. It was 38. In 10 years? In 10 years, less than 40 songs were in the top 25 most popular songs sung at churches in the United States. In the United States. So you're saying that there just really hasn't been in the last 10 years a lot of new popular songs that everyone's singing the same few songs rotated? Yes. And- Get this, they come from five churches. What do you mean? So the songs that are written of these 38 songs, all of them can be traced back to five churches in the U.S. Really? Bethel, Hillsong, Elevation, Passion, which I think is a conference, but maybe also a church. Yeah. And North Point. Yeah. So there's 38 songs, but only five churches really have an influence. Now, granted- so the Apples and Googles of the church world are writing most of the music. Right. It's the era of big music, right? <laughs> yeah. Just, yeah. And you would think that with such a great diversity and history of music, that there would be a greater diversity of songs sung in church. And now, granted, that may well be. Not every church is singing the top 25 every Sunday. Some of them are. and But they will have a diversity of music that doesn't just include those five churches, but there's a predominance. I think a lot of worship leaders in individual churches are actually probably working to write songs. Like anecdotally, I know lots of people that are trying to write their own songs. There's a lot of good technology for writing songs, not just the instruments, but the stuff you use to record that and Mm -hmm. distribute it. It's like really easy 
nowadays. When I was a kid, you couldn't record at home. The SY85 was pretty brand new. Now it's so easy. You can plug in your iPhone and just record. So that's interesting. The technology enables anyone to write a song. So you would think there'd be millions of songs. But that same technology enables, we didn't even get into the history uh, to back up, to go around like the radio and television and sound recordings on records, right? And then the evolution of tapes and CDs and then we the internet and now suddenly we're at Spotify. We didn't do any of that when we were talking about the <laughs> right. history or like the hymn books and print culture and all this stuff and where that how that got distributed. But now we're at a digital Spotify world mm-hmm. and that same technology, the digital technology that allows me to just for anyone to record, it's also the same technology that can make Hillsong or Bethel right. be the loudest triple giantest thing in the room. Yeah, I asked a friend who's a worship leader, hey, what should we be talking about on this episode? And that was one of the things that he said. And I know he's a writer himself. He's writing music for his church. But he said, yeah, to get on someone's playlist, you have to be on a large platform like Spotify, even to get playlisted. And then the competition there is massive. And so the likelihood that someone's going to use your song is so low. And it's because of the way Spotify is platforming the most popular songs. Which reinforces, self-reinforces. Right. And even in your own church, the songs that people know are going to be the songs that they're listening to on Spotify throughout the week. And they're going to be the ones that people want to hear and want to sing on a Sunday. And so these worship pastors, they can't create music that's unique to their church. We think about pastors and their sermons and they're preaching to a specific congregation, but we don't allow that for worship pastors to be writing songs for their specific congregations that are speaking to the needs and desires in their own congregation, which is definitely a loss. And it's, yes, something that has been created by the technological affordances that Spotify and digital music create. And the article that I was reading about these top 25 songs from five different churches, I think it was a Christianity Today article, they said in almost every case, those songs were either performed at large conferences, published on YouTube, or used during a live streamed Sunday service before they got popular. Ah, got it. So they're online in some way, or they have a huge audience in some way that allows them to gain that huge popularity. Yeah. And all of that demonstrates how technology is really shaping the current church music scene. So then what's going to happen when we dump in AI? Okay, let's get to AI, but first I think we need to think about some of the virtues of, oh, of course. church music. And Fine, we'll talk about the vices <laughs> and the virtues. <laughs> so, what do we want the future to look like? Yeah, I think throughout this history, we've seen lots of tensions between competing notions of what church music should be. So, for example, do you have skilled musicians Or should it just be the general congregation that's leading the music? Yeah, which you can think about it in the worship band sort of sense of, (laughs) do we have auditions? Some churches actually don't like that idea and some do. But also like in the sense of the church history, like we were talking about Bach Mm -hmm. or someone amazing writing all this stuff and writing professional music for professional musicians pretty much to just do in the church as opposed to everyone coming in and singing. Yeah. There is a technical skill required, not only to sing like harmony, but just to even perform form some of the music and you need these competent leaders to help you sing. 
and there have been paid musicians for centuries. That's not a new thing. But how does that impact that question of authenticity? Well, it's funny because I grew up in such a low church tradition. I remember the first time discovering that someone was paid to be a worship leader at their church. Right. And I thought that was like insane and terrible. <laughs> I thought it was so fake. Yeah. I thought it was like, no, the music rises from the congregation mm. and we're leading music together and we find the gifts of the people. And there's something to that. I don't actually love the idea of churches that hire a musician that aren't even part of the church. They yeah. show up, play a thing I and do leave. Agree with that. But to be fair, that's not completely a historical at all. The church yeah. has done that. <laughs> right. So we, yeah, what's the values that we're saying behind it? What do we believe the music is for? That leads to some of these other tensions, right? Mm. Is music for listening to or is it for singing? in the worship. Yeah. That might seem real obvious to some of us, but I think we might land on different yeah. parts. Well, you know, they're like, well, the special music is for listening to. That's where the, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> the offertory <laughs> <laughs> and everything else is you sing. Yeah. But even just it may be in the notion of authenticity. Like I find there are times when I need to listen and there are times when I need to sing. There are times I need to participate to be moved into worship. And then there are other times I need the music to just be there and for me to be contemplating my sin or my life or whatever. And so there's moments for both. Yeah. It sounds like you're a feeble mind. Like Augustine said when he said <laughs> that music can move feeble minds uh, towards more devotion or Absolutely. weak minds towards <laughs> devotion. And I was like, yeah, but probably me. <laughs> yeah. I felt that way this Sunday. I feel like that gets to another tension, which is like, should we be able to understand the words of the music? Should it have a meaning? Yeah that our brain is all tracking. Yeah, yeah. Or could it be just the music itself is speaking emotionally? Mm -hmm. Or even there could be a language that we don't understand or even an unknown tongue yeah. in the biblical spiritual gift sense that we don't totally understand. What is the music for? Do we have to follow it with our mind? Yeah, some early criticism around using instruments was that it was an unknown tongue in the words oh, of Paul. Funny. And that since we couldn't interpret it in some way, since we couldn't understand its meaning in a way that we could articulate, then we shouldn't be using instruments. But that might be different if you're someone who believes that speaking in tongues is a good thing. And yet, yes, there there is this aspect of the emotive quality of music, right? That goes a little bit beyond what I can understand in words. You know, you even hear me kind of pausing here to try and articulate <laughs> it. And it goes back to that question of worshiping in spirit and in truth. Does music help you do that and maybe help you articulate things that you can't say in words? Or I think there's also times where I find music extends or changes how I feel. And sometimes I need to sit in my own feelings and not have them be changed. And other times I need to let my feelings run their course, but not extend them with music and emotion and have that take me off further than I might go otherwise. It's really funny in the contemporary American Christian scene, you really have denominations that are all over the place on this. Most of your yeah. like charismatic traditions and a lot of your general evangelical traditions, there's no way you're not going to have a swelling electric guitar <laughs> with a 20-minute, 20 20-minute, 20 let's think 40-minute music set, like mm. to pump people up. You have other folks say that music is manipulative. And yep. as soon as they say that they have a real strong theological opinion about what music should or shouldn't do, mm -hmm. I also can't put in tradition with the conservative Presbyterian Reformant, which quite a few of those sort of grudgingly allowed music, but the whole background <laughs> of the Scottish... It's logical. 
and really like if it 90% head, 10% heart mm. and anything that got a little bit too off the rails there. So we were going to have music, but it better not lead to heavy <laughs> emotional. It's like having food, but that better not have any flavor. <laughs> it's just a sort of oddness. So you have these perspectives that really work their way and that sort of defines the technology mm-hmm. that we're using to make that music as well. So, I mean, that tension is really fascinating. Yeah. And then even just the question of like how elaborate should our music be? How elaborate should the technology be that's undergirding it? Should it be really simple acoustic guitar or whatever, unamplified? Is that more authentic than something built on top of a lot of technology? Yeah, and it feels like that. Some of the quote-unquote worship wars of the 20th century with generations going, the guitar mass, my mom talking about when she was young, going to that being cool the 60s was happening <laughs> yeah. and some catholic churches are putting a guitar yeah. out there and there's a horrified generation <laughs> that this is like beneath us this right. is and i think simplicity was a lot of part of that this mm. folk music is it's not what you do in churches has pages and pages of notation yeah. and yeah. complexity to mm-hmm. it and the simplicity seemed not worthy of the church it was like wearing a t-shirt music to church instead of wearing a suit <laughs> and we need suit music in this place <laughs> and maybe in a lot of arguments the simplistic arguments were like god deserves it right you could do your best for god you mm-hmm. want to do your crappiest for god and mm-hmm. So we're going to have the quartet. Yeah, yeah. And how much are you depending on the music to help you worship versus how much are you doing work to find a place of worship and find a heart for worship? And some of this links to the theological concept, these are all related, of transcendence versus imminence or transcendence versus accessibility. Like God is huge and out there and bigger than we could ever know. And imminence being he's very close to us. Mm -hmm. And we have witnessed for both in scripture, but should the music be transcendent and call us up and out and difficult, which maybe relates to these things, right? Yeah. Maybe it's good that it's an unknown tongue because it's pulling us beyond ourselves. It's pulling us out of ourselves in a way that we can't do in words. The music actually helps us to lift our spirits to God in a way that we aren't able to in language. It's funny, different transcendence can mean different things to different people. I think of back to the complexity. Some people are thinking transcendence might be a really complex orchestra that has 50 moving parts and a conductor. Mm-hmm. But man, like it could also be like a, I don't know, think of like a, a single note, like on a flute or something mm. that just could be going for a long time yeah. or something that yeah. could really be very simple. Yeah. I feel like it pulls us out of our present space yeah. and puts us into a mindset to comprehend yeah. God in a different way. That could be really different. Yeah. As a side note, I didn't mention this before, but I was reading this musical history book that some of the earliest instruments were designed to imitate nature. So that Mm. a flute or a whistle was imitating the wind or birds. Yeah, yeah. Which makes some sense, right? And drums, like, were imitating, like, heartbeat. Mm. And so there's some connection to some of the instruments as extensions of the human nature. Mm. Yeah, let heaven and nature sing, so to speak. Nice. Another tension that kind of runs through most of history is this balance between the human voice and the instrumentation and how loud the instruments are. There's... Lots of people who oppose the organ for being too loud and overpowering the voices of the congregation to the point that maybe they give up and stop singing. And that's a very contemporary argument as well against loud bands and worship music today. But I think it's something that worship leaders have to think through and have a theological grounding for. Why should the congregation be heard versus how loud should the instruments be? In ways that the technology has forced its hand on that. I do remember older people coming up to me in church when I was in charge of 
time people where to go. And yeah, they'd be like, it's too loud. The speakers are turned up too loud. And the sound guy is the one that's making yeah. the decision. Yeah about what's happening there, which it actually has a theological implication, doesn't it? Right. And this person thinks the theology of worship should be that we can hear each other. Yeah. And the sound guy thinks, I want to hear some more bass drum. <laughs> and, and so that really is the question about how much technology, which we've been thinking about the whole time in our history of technology and worship, how much technology do we allow into the church? And that all these tensions or assumptions in some ways go into a cycle with these values and decisions and what people do with tech. Sometimes the tech is driving the values Sometimes the value comes back and drives the tech, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. like it's probably in a loop. It was interesting when you were talking about even recent denominations still banning instruments. I guess some of the Methodists split up, and one of them were vocal only. Others of them, just even in the mid-1900s, were, okay, we do allow piano and organ, but not anything else. So, like, it's not regulative principle back with Calvin. We're like, it's not the harp and lyre. We're going to allow the piano and the organ. Yeah. But the guitar, and I'm sure that was around the guitar time, which we talked about the guitar masses, that's not allowed because that felt like a newer technology, I think, probably to those folks. And so different churches, based on these values, are drawing lines based on new technologies that are coming towards them. So now we could get to what happens when AI or other future technology comes and hits the church. So at the top, we started with that guy on TikTok that was using AI to write worship lyrics. All right. I also did it, by the way. Uh, oh, really? Feel free to go. I don't know if you've seen it. Go to the website. I'll post it for you and everyone else. And I had AI write a song about Jesus healing the blind man in John 9. Oh, interesting. And it did a remarkable job. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> like you might be singing it this Sunday? <laughs> <laughs> it was really good. Our friend John Dyer, who we've had on the podcast, yep. who's a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, started writing on what would happen with AI and worship music. Music. I looked this up back in 2017. Man, he's always ahead of schedule. <laughs> Typical John. <laughs> so ridiculous. He was calling them recurrent neural networks, which isn't like the way we're using GPT yeah. now, but it was yep. a precursor. Sure. And he was having it write worship songs. And then he caught up uh, later when some more of this stuff came out and he created a thing called worship.ai. It's a website. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> you can I go think to I've it. been on it. It's been a while. <laughs> and it's an artificial intelligence lyric generator for worship. <laughs> and the great thing is he, you can choose, you can have it right in three styles. You can choose modern worship music, classic hymns, or the Psalms King James Version. <laughs> <laughs> Psalms King James Version. Thank you very much. <laughs> and you select one and then have it generate a song. And so you can go to worship.ai and see lyrics that AI wrote there. How would you, yeah, what are your thoughts on this? Oh man, I go back to that quote from Charles Spurgeon. We might as well pray by machinery as praise by machinery. <laughs> because like yeah. the thought of having an AI generate a song and those are the lyrics then that I'm going to worship by. That's a pretty tough sell for me. And maybe now even generate the music, for instance, that the TikTok yep. they, it generated chords. But there's a new artist on Instagram called JC the Artist. I don't know who <laughs> JC is supposed to be, but you know what I'm <laughs> I saying? Can, I can make a couple of guesses. Um, it's billed as the first AI Christian artist. And in this case, they, someone, I don't know who, generated music in voice. Hmm. And so now you have AI actually singing, doing the instruments and the voice as well. We have AI writing and now AI singing and doing the instrumentation and the worship community is out of a job, essentially. We've replaced an entire industry of worship leaders. Carrie Job has done just fine for herself, so. (laughs) 
Yeah, we talked about the ways that instrumentation carries us into sort of a transcendent space and is in an unknown tongue. But here with AI-generated lyrics, it is in a known tongue. And yet the question of intent and the question of meaning behind the generation of that piece is, some would say it's still in question. Is there meaning in the text because there wasn't an intention on the part of the author? And then there's the question of, okay, yes, you created this song, and it's great on John 9, but you gave it the spark of the idea. You right. were still at the nucleus of that idea and gave it the spark that it then extrapolated into. Right. Like, how is that different than me when I was young, sitting down in front of my Yamaha SY85 <laughs> keyboard and picking a string set or a pad? If you're in music, you know pads. Pads are like these slow whoosh sounds like... Okay. Okay. That's called a pad. And I'd pick a pad, but that wasn't natural. The computer was making yep. that. Mm-hmm. And I'd layer these things. And so I was the spark behind that keyboard, but it was doing things that I would never be able to do without it. Yep. Yeah. The technology was way extending my brain at a very significant level, mm-hmm. way more than even just a traditional instrument, like me and a flute or something. It would create, I can be a flute a flute, a violin, and a whole orchestra all at once with yeah. that thing. Yeah. How is it different, me using AI to write a worship versus me using that 80s synthesizer to write worship? Yeah, I do think there is a significant difference in the sense of language and meaning are in a different category for me than the unknown language of music. Yeah, I think that's true. This is lyrical over here if it's writing it. Yeah. And that feels really different. But you start bringing up a really important point before, too. Like, where does the meaning start and land? Like, So we think about the authorship of it, like it being really important. Who wrote this and where did it came from? But the reception of it is just as important or maybe more important, right? Like, for instance, I think we will want to say theologically that the people sitting in the room, mm-hmm. say, singing that song, mm-hmm. mean it. Or yeah, understand that if we have those assumptions about the meaning yeah, being important, yeah. understand what they're singing and yep. are changed by that. And in some ways that's aligning hearts and unity in relationship to God and each other for that worship. So if that's happening, mm. if they're in the reception, in the performance of it, and I use performance in an art term, performance means like when it happens. So if you think of a painting, yeah. if you think of Jackson Pollock throwing paint on the canvas <laughs> and splashing everything, that's when he made it. But it, the performance could be like when it's displayed later. Okay. Mm-hmm. So like mm-hmm. when it's displayed, when the worship is actually done, isn't that what makes it real? That feels like a consequentialist argument that like the outcomes are what justify the process itself. Whereas we might say that the work of the worship leader, the work of the person writing the song, if they give up that responsibility of integrating an understanding of John 9 and the role of blindness in our spiritual lives and the understanding they have from their own experience of being spiritually blind and then having sight given to them, those things are meaningful and relevant for them in the writing of it as well. And so there's virtue in the work of the writing, not just in the output that it's creating, so to speak. Yeah, I think it's better to think about music as a text, and I use that in the academic sense of a text has an author, Mm -hmm. and then it has a reader, and then it has something that it does in the world. You start getting into the philosophical terms are locution, illocutionary, and perlocutionary intent. So that's a little (laughs) bit nerdy. But the thing is, like, 
texts and do things in the Bible, right. certainly one of them, yeah. who wrote it, but then like how it's received mm-hmm. matters quite a lot. And you actually do have different Christian traditions emphasizing different points of that. Where, for instance, where is the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? Was it right when only when the person wrote it or is it also when the person reads it? I think most Christians want to say both and then yeah. we have to figure out how that is. Yeah. The music, I think that's also true. So the writing is part of it, that's mm-hmm. fine. But how it's received mm-hmm. is part of that. And right. then like what it does in the world. And the AI creativity part of that so it does affect the authorship a little bit, but we're yeah. saying, I want to make the argument that the AI becomes an instrument in the hands of a musician <laughs> yeah. that helps create that. And we've talked about that with Dali, yeah. the AI generating images that an artist could actually really use that to generate some pretty amazing things mm-hmm. as an extension of their creativity. But it doesn't necessarily reflect the reception of it. And we're a little bit blind to the reception of it. We have so much tech at the reception, just again, walking into the church and like we're surrounded, the music is being delivered by tech in every yeah. way. Yeah. And that becomes invisible to us because it becomes environmental to us mm-hmm. because it's been so normal to us that the AI part feels really a scary future, but somehow the digital lighting board doesn't. Like we can have Gregorian chant on CD and we can forget about the CD part and just pay attention to the Gregorian chant part. 100%. And as I think about the future, if AI becomes this acceptable instrument, which I struggle to call an instrument for various reasons, if worship leaders start to use that to generate songs that they want to write and sing, I see a proliferation of songs well beyond what we already have. I think you can find thousands of worship songs on Spotify that you've never heard of. And and the possibility for that proliferation. You wrote a song on John 9 in no time. And <laughs> right. the work then is maybe to set it to music or have another AI do that. But the proliferation is, I think, something we could see in the future and I think have already seen. And I think that's partly why you do have only 38 songs in the top 25 because we have so many songs out there. We can't really decide. We can't decide what to choose. And so we just go to the top 25 and say, all right, that's good enough. I need a filter. That's the best way I can do it. That leads me back to my original point on some of the AI now becoming the new search engine of mm-hmm. the internet. Not in this episode, but we've talked about AI, you know, for the all yeah. season. And at least at one point I was talking about the search engine is woefully under-equipped to go through all the knowledge that exists yeah. out there now. Yeah. And so first page results, yeah, first two results, that's it. And we really can't go through the mountain, the skyscrapers of information with the search engine. It's mm-hmm. not working. Mm-hmm. AI has the potential to turn into this deep sea submersible and go find things that we weren't finding before and that are out there. And so if you reverse this, it makes me think, oh, I really want a, a cogent song on this text of the scripture. Right. I might find something that I would not have found just looking at the Spotify top 10 list. Like mm-hmm. it's a, a whole other way to go dive into the creative universe and find find what might be available there for us. All right, it's time for another round of vice or virtue. Yeah, these are rounds. We need to figure out who has won and lost these <laughs> and keep score. Organs, not like your <laughs> internal organs. These are external organs. 
I could possibly put that sound in instead of that. Oh man, organs. The first organ I think of, I was in the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. Wow. Which is like not that old, but back in the day they used to give attic tours. Like you go up in the storage. Like, so it was like a special part. I don't know if we paid extra or what we did. Church will make money any way it can. Exactly. Attic tours. We're walking through the attic of the National Cathedral and there's like statues and like little strewn pieces of art and then oh, wow. there's this like old organ that's just sitting there that it looks like a controller but it like has the keys yeah, yeah. multiple layers of keys stops and that kind of stuff I assume it's supposed to connect to something but doesn't connect to anything the reason I remember it by the way is because right next to it there is a statue of Jesus with his hands outheld and he had plastic sheeting over Jesus Oh, and that's what named my first blog which was called Jesus Under Plastic <laughs> I don't know if you knew me in that phase. I I did not know you. I think I have heard that you had a blog named that. Yes. (laughs) Jesus in the bus. So I got it. I'm like, oh, that seems fun. It's mysterious. I don't even know what it means, but I'm going to call it that. But there was like some old organ next to it, just the controller. And so I picture this, the statue of Jesus under plastic next to this organ controller. I'd imagine him like playing it or something. I've always found the organ to be, I've played the piano since I was really little. So like I've yeah. been a musician like by ear because my parents gave me a little keyboard when I was really young, right? Yeah. Played it for a long time, but I've never understood how you're supposed to move your feet up and down a keyboard mm-hmm. while you move your hands up and down a keyboard. Like it's just insane. And it's like doing bass and I sort of get it, but my feet would yeah. never be able to do that in a million years. And so I watch organists go at it. And I'm like, the level of complexity that you've worked to work on this seems like something that is not worth the, what do they say? What's the saying? The juice isn't the juice worth, isn't the worth the waste to squeeze. Because this music ain't that great. Because <laughs> so, I have very little appreciation for organ music. I'm, there's like really good organ music, but I've never loved it. It does have that sort of swelling, take yeah. out all voices capacity. Mm. It never really feels like it. It doesn't create emotion in me. It feels like mm. someone turned on white noise in 17 frequencies. <laughs> though, even though I appreciate the bassist lady doing her little feet, chunking <laughs> along the bottom of the organ, I think the whole thing's a vice. <laughs> I have heard rumors. I don't know if this is true, that if you play the organ today, you can make a pretty good living. Yeah, because uh, they're all dying. Yeah, there, there aren't that many. That, and probably. so they're in high demand. I think there's more organs than there are organists. Yeah, right. The first organist that I knew, her name was Janice Booker. Oh, Janice. She sounds like an organist. Yeah. And I grew up going to a Mennonite church. and Mennonite churches had organs? On one side was Janice Booker, and on the other side was a piano, and my mom played piano, and she and Janice Booker would play organ, piano, duets. duets. <laughs> Before the service. And and yeah, she was an elderly woman to me at a young age. But yeah, she would, you know, her feet dance across those floor keys or whatever they're called. And, but I do agree. I have heard- Floor keys. Yeah, another example of how we're going to get destroyed (laughs) in the comments. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) I haven't heard a lot of organ music that I really enjoy. I appreciate the history of it. And I think in a beautiful cathedral, maybe it would be a different experience. But just for the historicness of it and the way it created all sorts of consternation for Christians throughout church history, I'm going to say it's a vice. Okay, organ has a double vice. Uh, <laughs> it seems right. Guess that one hasn't converted to art for us. <laughs> We're only into AI synths now. 
Well, good discussion on technology and how it affects the music and worship of the church. And we went deep today. I feel like that could be an entire podcast. Maybe someone's done it out there and we didn't. <laughs> Probably. We yeah, should yeah, point we to did them. find your podcast. I feel folks should let us know if they want to pull on any threads that yes. we started. Because maybe there are other episodes buried in here that we could zoom in and talk about. Yeah, leave us a voicemail at deviceandvirtue.com or just go into the show notes. There's a link to leave a voicemail and tell us your opinions about instruments and technology in church music and worship. We'd love to hear what you think. And thanks again to our Patreon supporters who are giving a little amount each month to really help make this possible. We really appreciate you. This episode was brought to you in part by Just These Guys. You know, a pastor and a psychologist team up to break down scripture and psychology, empowering you to transform by the renewing of your mind. Listen today at justtheseguys.podbean.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Just These Guys, you know.